The scripture reading for this afternoon is taken from 2 Thessalonians. We'll be reading chapter 3, the verses 1 to 15, focusing especially on verse 15. 2 Thessalonians 3, and you'll be able to find that on page 1360 of your pew Bible. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of God may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not in accordance with the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but being busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And so, too, we focus on that today. Do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. We'll now turn to the Heidelberg Catechism. We hope to return to the Lord's Days as we, the Lord's Days on the Lord's Supper as we celebrate Lord's Supper again. But today we move ahead to Lord's Day 31 on the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and church discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and closed to unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and closed by the preaching of the gospel? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits, as often as they, by true faith, accept the promise of the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. According to this testimony of the gospel, God will judge, both in this life and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by church discipline? According to the command of Christ, people who call themselves Christians 
but show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or in life, are first repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. If they do not give up their errors or wickedness, they are reported to the church, that is, to the elders. If they do not heed also their admonitions, they are forbidden the use of the sacraments and they are excluded by the elders from the Christian congregation and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. They are again received as members of Christ and of the church when they promise and show real amendment so far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our Lord's Day today deals with the keys of the kingdom of heaven preaching and church discipline. On previous Sundays, we've looked at these questions as we dealt with this particular Lord's Day, and we've talked about what this looks like, how preaching fits into it, and how church discipline fits into it. We've especially dealt with the question of church discipline as we find it described in Matthew 18. Jesus tells us, as we find it summarized in our Lord's Day, first, tell a brother his faults between him and you alone, then take one or two more witnesses, then tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen, then treat him as a heathen or a tax collector. Those are the steps that we take. As we remind our brothers and sisters that the kingdom of heaven is opened when they believe that God has forgiven all of their sins for the sake of Christ's merits, and we direct them to take hold of this promise by true faith, accepting the promise of the gospel. And this is what we do when we warn them as well, step by step along the way, that it's closed when it is proclaimed and testified to unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rests on them if they do not repent and remind them that this is what Scripture teaches. According to this testimony of the gospel, God calls us to repentance and to faith. And according to this testimony of the gospel, God will judge both in this life and in the life to come. These are the steps that we take. But what about the how? What about the manner in which we do this? We'll look at that today in light of our passage from 2 Thessalonians, responding to unrepentant behavior in Christ's church. First of all, not treating as an enemy, but in the second place, warning as a brother. The first command of Christ through the Apostle Paul in this verse is an important reminder. There will be times when a brother or sister starts to wander. A wandering brother or sister is one who is described in question and answer 85 as one who calls themselves a Christian, but shows themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or in life. Sometimes you will see somebody who quite frequently recognizes this to be the case, that they, they, that they are following this in name only. But there are other times when they call themselves a Christian and they need to have their eyes opened by a brother or sister in Christ, that the way that they are responding is truly not in a Christian way. So what does the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter, remind us to do 
with such a brother or sister. He teaches that we are not to treat a wandering brother or sister as an enemy. How does this world, this society, this this culture tend to deal with people that they consider to be their enemies? This is something that some of you who are on social media may have experienced if you've waded into political discussions in recent days at all. There are those who hold a different view from your own, and you comment on them and you open up a conversation. The conversation gets more and more heated, and it ends with the other person suggesting that if you do not hold to exactly the same language that they want you to, if you are not willing to use the approved language, then you are labeled the worst thing that they can think of. You are called perhaps a racist or a communist or a Nazi or more. And then the conversation is over. What's going on when this happens? What's going on, although we don't like to use that kind of language today, is that in their eyes you have become their enemy. Now, if we look further back in history, when people considered someone of their own group to be their enemy, they would just challenge them to a fight. They would physically try to destroy them with swords or guns or fists. Now, we recognize that some of that still carries on as we deal with people who are enemies of the state and we send soldiers overseas. But when it comes closer to home, our world, our country, and our culture deals with it a little bit differently. Our society and our culture today rejects trying to destroy someone physically. But that doesn't mean that our culture doesn't try to destroy the other person. In our culture today, many people try to destroy each other more politely. They use labels and names, trying to drive away those other people that they consider their enemies to shut them down. But here we see something different rise up. Here the Apostle Paul speaks in a very countercultural way. He says here, if someone refuses to listen to the authority and the teachings of Christ, which the apostles are passing on, they are not, still not, to count him as an enemy. Now, at first, we don't necessarily understand why this is so countercultural. In our minds, it might be strange to consider that word being used in our passage today to talk about enemies in the context of church. After all, isn't that the first step to there being problems? To even consider that there might be others who people could possibly treat as enemies, even among the people of God. And yet the Apostle Paul does talk this way. If that shocked response is one that comes to mind for you personally, consider this. What is an enemy exactly? The concise Oxford English Dictionary describes it in this way. An enemy is a person who is actively opposed to or hostile to someone or something. In Greek, the word that's used here is very similar. One who is in hostility or one who is in opposition to the other. This is more than just a one-time being angry. This is, as you find sometimes on social media, or in other areas, behaving in a way that tries to tear the other person down. 
Someone who does not listen to the teaching of Christ, which the apostles have passed down, has put themselves in opposition to the church of Christ, the Apostle Paul teaches here today. And if they continue to harden their hearts, as we see described here in this letter to the Thessalonians, then they are expressing hostility towards our Lord Jesus Christ. If they, question and answer 85, persist in their sin, it is a betrayal and an abandonment not of you, but of Christ. They set themselves up as an enemy of Christ. By their actions and words, they tear down what Christ has said or done. Their words are actively opposed to. They are hostile to the words or actions of Christ. So what do you do? The response that's given, the Apostle Paul writes here in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14, leading into verse 15, is first, do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Now to be clear, this is not one that overrules Christ's teaching in Matthew 18, but it's a flashback to it. Of course, our catechism describes and Christ as, it as Christ teaches it in Matthew 18, that according to the command of Christ, people who call themselves Christian but show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or life are first to be repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. So first, one-on-one. And then if they do not give up their errors or wickedness, they are reported to the church, that is, to the elders. So they are repeatedly admonished one-on-one and then together with other witnesses, and then they are spoken of to the church, and the church gets involved. And if they do not heed also their admonitions, they are forbidden the use of the sacraments, and they are excluded by the elders from the Christian congregation and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. They are again received as members of Christ and of the church when they promise and show real amendment. So what the apostle Paul writes here, do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed, doesn't overrule all of this, but it is a summary of this whole step-by-step process. It's thrown in there to be a flashback so people can think back to what Jesus Christ taught. All that is all taken into account when the Apostle Paul writes, do not keep company with them. Now, this doesn't mean that we are not to speak with this person over that period of time. To keep company involves keeping someone close. Not keeping company means rethinking other areas of your life where you are more intimate with this brother or sister who calls themselves a Christian but shows themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or in life. Joining in fellowship and worship is the closest that you can get because you are involved with that person spiritually. And this is what is led to as you move towards excommunication. There is a danger in continuing to keep that person as your companion, as someone who is close and intimate to you. Scripture teaches that it will hurt you. As the Bible teaches, bad company corrupts good character, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. Or a little leaven leavens the whole lump, Galatians 5, verse 9. What 
God is teaching through this is that though you might think you remain uninfluenced, if you keep them close without interacting with them on what they are speaking of, you won't remain uh, on, on where they're going astray, you won't remain untouched by their thinking or behavior. This is why Christ teaches through the Apostle Paul, do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. We come up to this person and speak to them in terms of, I can't continue hanging out with you in the same way while pretending to ignore the problem areas of your life. I want to deal with them because I care about you and because they're doing damage to you. And if you don't want to do anything or even talk about it, maybe we'll have to reconnect when you are. And in, times you, in time, you pray that they may be ashamed of their own behavior, convicted by Christ. And then you do one of the things that can be very difficult. You turn them over to God in prayer. But despite all of that, while their position has become one of enmity with Christ due to their own actions, you're not to treat them as an enemy. This brings us to our second point. When someone first begins their journey of straying from God, there can be a temptation towards feeling hostility or anger towards them. And this can be especially true if you took that first step towards warning them that Jesus describes in Matthew 18, and it was not well received. If you point out their sin and their response is to become defensive and angry, This can also be especially true if someone begins walking away very publicly and loudly from those things which are the most important in the world to you. Think of someone you love. How upset would you be if someone walked away and loudly slandered that person to the world if they misrepresented who they are or maybe made fun of them? And if that's true for that person whom you love, How much more true should it not be if someone slanders the God you love, the Lord whom you love with all your heart, soul, and mind, Jesus Christ, whom you would be willing to leave all others for to follow, Matthew 10, verse 37. And yet Christ calls us to, though himself betrayed and abandoned by this person's actions, Christ calls us to respond in the way that he does. What did Christ do with his enemies? Those who set themselves up against him, what did he do with them? He didn't immediately destroy them. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't allow his followers to draw the sword when the crowds came for him. Remember when he talked about how he had every opportunity to call down legions of angels on them and destroy them, and yet he chose not to? He was practicing what he preached when he said, do good to them, Matthew 5, verse 44. And this is beautiful because there were those among them for whom it ultimately ended in redemption. In Acts 6, verse 7, we read how many priests believed, perhaps even from among those who had once called for his crucifixion. They were redeemed, loved from eternity, and brought into the family of God through the blood of Christ. 
but even better as we look forward through history. It ends off with our redemption as well. Romans 5 verse 10 teaches us that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Christ took us, so easily prone to stray, and redeemed even us. Even us, some of whom you hear today might confess that you found yourselves or ought to have found yourselves on the wrong side of church discipline in your youth. If you see them as a brother, if you see a wandering person as a brother or a sister, you have a different attitude as you approach them. Through all of these steps as you interact with them, you don't hate them, but rather you approach them with the same mindset that our Lord Jesus Christ approached them. You want their redemption. Do not count them as an enemy, Christ teaches through Paul here, but admonish them as a brother. In order to understand what a big deal this command is also in the culture of the day, you need to understand how they approached people with whom they ran into these issues back in the day. Marcus Aurelius, a philosopher of that era, taught that if someone behaves roughly and rudely in the gymnasia, which is a public area gathering to get, where they could gather together, we simply avoid him, yet not as an enemy. And so in life, when we meet people of this character, it is proper to avoid them and not look at them in uh, not look at them critically or in askance, says, or to conceive hatred for them. But what you find in this is that the people who taught these philosophical ideas showed no concern for the improvement of the offender and recognized no duty to deal with them as a brother and to call them back as a brother. Now, in our own culture, if we look at that in the mirror of their culture, we, of course, tend to be similar in our own way. It can be very easy and very tempting to limit this command. Say you've taken that first step of discipline, and you've talked personally to them, and you're still received coldly. The response can easily be, okay, well, I won't treat them like an enemy, but I don't actually have to deal with them. This command not to treat them like an enemy, however, is not the end. Again, this is the second part of what we are to consider as we are to admonish such a person as a brother or sister, to speak to them on the matter. Not just to approach them as somebody whom we hope will be redeemed and who we desire to be redeemed by Christ as they go astray, but to actually interact with them and respond to them. This is hard for us in our culture today. We live in a culture that's politically correct. You need to accept everyone for who they are, we are taught, regardless of what they want to do. You need to tolerate them. And if they're living in sin, that's none of your business. 
But that's not biblical at all. We are called to correct each other in love, in brotherly love, and to receive it in love because we know that there are consequences to ignoring correction. Proverbs 13, verse 18 says, Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, but he who regards a rebuke will be honored. And again, in Proverbs 15, verse 10, we hear the warning, He who hates correction will die. It ought always to be a sign of love and care for the person who is wandering to speak to them. It ought always to be a sign of love and care to respond with discipline where necessary. And when it happens, if it does happen in a spirit of brotherly love, then it should be received by us in that way as well. Because correction is a kindness. It's meant to draw another person from sin against Jesus Christ. To call them back in love, to save their soul from death, to bring them to repentance. We read in Proverbs 9, verses 8 to 9, Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. And again in Psalm 141, verse 5, we read, Let the righteous strike me. It shall be a kindness and let him rebuke me. It shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. Christ teaches us through the psalmist here not only to pray for correction where it is necessary, but to pray that we would not harden our hearts when it does come our way. It's a natural human inclination to want to put our backs up when someone confronts us. But God teaches that the one who truly does want wisdom asks God for the humility to submit to correction. And this is our prayer for them as well. As we approach a brother or a sister in Christ and we interact with them in this way, we pray that this would be the inclination of their heart as well. So we pray those three things, first of all, that we would have a heart in which we desire their repentance. In the second place, that we would be given the words to say and the courage to say them. In the third place, that their hearts would be changed to receive it in a way that is good, to receive it as it's intended, to receive it as love. So as we consider these things, we reflect again on this final question. What is your ultimate desire for your brother or sister? It is to win them for Christ. Because it's only if they stop living in enmity towards Christ, which is to say showing themselves to be his enemy through their words or through their life, and they turn to him in repentance, faith, and love, that they can rest secure. While they live, there is always time. There is always time. That though they lived as his enemies, if they repent and come to him, he will without hesitation embrace them in love. And though we ourselves might be deeply grieved by the things they have done, and we are hurt for the sake of Christ because of the harm that they have done to his name, we remember how Christ dealt with those who set themselves up to be his enemies. 
and we remember how he has dealt with us with love. Not giving up on us, but working towards our redemption every day, even as we confront. Working in our hearts through his spirit to convict us and bring us to repentance so that we could be received as members of Christ. And so too do we reach out as lo- with love, not treating as enemies, but seeking their salvation. Ultimately wanting to, as we see in question and answer 86, receive them again as members of Christ. Encouraging repentance and reminding them that we are always here to receive them in love. Let that be our goal and our aim, loved ones in Christ. In the words of 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 5, may the Lord direct our hearts into the love of God and in the patience of Christ. And may we treat those around us not as enemies, but warn them as brothers and sisters. Amen.